The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You have heard, it, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's great to have all of you here this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the meditations of each and every one of our hearts will be pleasing to you and acceptable to you in these moments. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the second Sunday in Epiphany. And if you're not familiar with that word, it means to reveal or to make known. And as a season, Epiphany's focus is on Jesus being increasingly seen more and more by those who follow him so that by the end of the season, they know him more. And they understand him and know him in ways and depths that they never imagined at the very beginning. And the lectionary has us in the Gospel of Matthew this year. So last week, we're in Matthew chapter 3 and Jesus' baptism, and also Matthew 4, his temptation. And now we're in Matthew 5, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be in the Sermon on the Mount for the next five weeks. There are many common mistakes that are made with the Sermon on the Mount. But probably the most common is to think of the Sermon on the Mount, first of all, as a moral rule book that people use in order to gain God's approval and his love and his acceptance. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. As I often tell you, the gospel, the good news of the Christian faith is not, if I obey, then God will love me, and then he'll accept me and approve of me. Uh, If it was that, it wouldn't be good news because that's not possible. What the Sermon on the Mount speaks about is utterly impossible for us left to ourselves and apart from God. You've already failed it. If you've ever said anything negative about someone's intelligence or about their character, you failed it. If you've ever said, you jerk, or he's such a fool, you failed it. And probably many of you are thinking, I typically say things far worse than that. Well, you failed it. But here's the good news. The good news is that it's not, first of all, a moral book, morality book about what we must do in order to be loved by God. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not about morality. It very much is. It's about what is true, right, good, and beautiful, and what is not. It's just not first and foremost about our morality. It's about God. It's about 
who he is, what he is like, his character. It's a spoken epiphany written down for us so that we might understand who he is and understand what the very life of God is like. We're supposed to read this and think this is who God is. This is what he's like. And this is the life that Jesus was born for, that he was born, that he lived, that he died. He was raised in order to share with us. This is the Christian life the life of those who've been united to Jesus by faith and in baptism. And so the gospel is not, if I obey, God will love me. It's not it. It's also not, God loves me, therefore I can live however I want. And I don't need to change. That's not the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is that God loves you. That he loves you deeply, infinitely, beyond anything that you can imagine. And he has done everything necessary for you to have new life. New, good, beautiful, true Life, the very life of God expressed in human terms. So live it. That is the gospel. And speaking of common mistakes, Alyssa and I have been married for almost 25 years now. And that means that I'm now just now old enough and experienced enough to speak authoritatively about common mistakes that husbands make. And so when I was about 25 years or so ago, Alyssa and I have been married about two weeks, maybe three. And we were living in a tiny apartment in Durango, Colorado. And Alyssa had grown up placing her shirt on the carpet in her floor and quickly running a hot iron over it to remove the wrinkles. But in her home growing up, she had nice carpet. In our apartment, we had what was basically toxic plastic strands that were one step above AstroTurf. And so when she laid her shirt there and began to run that hot iron over it, the two became one immediately. And all I could think of was, there goes our deposit. And so I went over and I was trying to remove it and began pounding the burnt carpet. And what did Alyssa immediately begin to do? Cry, just broke out into tears, sobbing. You promised to cherish me just about two weeks ago. And so young husbands in disagreements, this is what happens. Your wives cry and you lose. So just get used to it. But actually the mistake was about anger. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by speaking about salt and then light and then anger. So what does anger have to do with salt and light? So three points this morning. The first of which is beginning metaphors. First thing that Jesus does is, after speaking about the Beatitudes is that he tells his followers that they are like salt and light, that they are to function in this world in the way that salt functions in relation to meat and the way light functions with darkness. And notice his concern. His concern is not just to make a comparison between these, but he raises the issue of both salt and light failing to function as they're intended to function. Verse 13, he says, but if salt has lost its taste, if it's no longer doing what it's supposed to do. And then verse 13, 15, he says, people don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket so it can't do what it's supposed to do. So it's about what the ways in which these are supposed to function. The word in verse 13 that we translate lose its taste is literally becomes foolish. The Greek word for fool is moros, from which we get our English word. Yes, moron. I knew you were going to say that. The other one said that, but also sophomore, because a sophomore, any sophomores here this morning? Y'all finally made it up, made it to church. There weren't many in the first two services. A sophomore is a wise fool. It's a combination word that, that brings together the word for wisdom and the word for fool. So a wise fool, a freshman, I guess is just a straight fool, but a sophomore is one that's had a little bit of education. They know some things, so they're a wise fool. And Jesus's point is that a thing is wisest when it is most fully itself and keeps closest to its true and given nature. And the true and given nature of a Christian is to be like salt because Jesus is like salt. 
But what does salt do? Because again, that's the emphasis here. Salt and light doing something. We think of salt primarily as a seasoning today, and that's part of it. Salt, what salt does is it makes food tastes better. And part of our role in relationship to the world is to make this world and this life better and taste better. Uh, Erasmo Leva Maricacus. I've quoted him before. He's a theologian. It's a mouthful of a name, much like Frickenschmidt, but at least my parents just named me Tim and not Erasmo Leva Maricacus. But anyways, this is what he says. He emphasizes this. He says, Jesus is describing the critical character of Christian vocation. Either the Christian heightens the quality of human life and makes it more palatable, more delightfully nourishing, or he has no reason for being. Salt is not salt for itself, cannot be its own end. It serves a humble yet somehow indispensable purpose. Tasteless Christians who have lost their proper flavor have forgotten their function as the condiment of society. I like that phrase, the condiment of society. It begs the question, Do we, in this world, make this world taste better? Do we make this life taste better to others? Do you? Does your presence in their lives, does does it make their life better? Does it make it more palatable, enjoyable, or delectable, or does it make it harder and more difficult? Think about your marriage. Think about your friendships. Think about your children or at work or here at church or at school. He says the condiment of society. Is that us? He's speaking about salt as a seasoning, and that's an aspect of this metaphor, but I don't think it's the main meaning. The main meaning belongs to salt as a preservative because this is the ancient Near East, long time before refrigeration, and then salt was especially rubbed into meat in order to prevent it from decay or to at least slow the decay. The way that salt does that is it draws the water out of the meat's tissues once that meat has been cut, like, and it prevents microorganisms from beginning to grow, like yeast or mold or something. Because as soon as an animal's flesh is cut and it begins to bleed, microorganisms can settle in and ruin the meat. And so salt in the ancient world was rubbed into the meat to prevent that. And everyone knew in that day and age that that's what Jesus was saying. They would have understand and heard his words on a spiritual level, him saying that the soul of our world has been cut and it's bleeding. It's begun to bleed spiritually. And that is true of everything in this world. It's true as our world as a whole, every society, every culture, and every individual in it, everything and everyone in this world is like a cut piece of flesh that has begun to bleed and is decaying. And it happens on every level of life in this world. We know it and we experience it daily. It happens for us physically. Our physical bodies are breaking down. We reach a certain age and our bodies are no longer building themselves up and growing, but rather breaking down and deteriorating. This is one of the diff- most difficult, hardest parts of middle age for me. Anytime I go out to do something active, Alyssa always says, Tim, remember, you are 47 and not 27. But I tell her, my mind remembers what it's like to be 27. My mind can till, still tell my body to do the things that I did at 27. It's just that my body can no longer do it. I go play basketball with my boys and I go up for a layup or t- shoot a jump shot in the air. And it's like my body's having a seizure in midair because... My body is breaking down physically, and it will continue to do so until my body dies. And that's true of all of us. Everything physical in this world is breaking down. It's what scientists call entropy. You familiar with this word, entropy? We haven't had a word of the day for a while, so let's say it together on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Entropy. Very good, class. Entropy is a measure of the disorder in a physical object. 
So energy disperses over time. It's not retained. And so disorder and breakdown inevitably occurs. It's why ice melts. It's why when you turn the heat off on a boiling pot of water, the water cools. It's why bodies get old. It's why meat decays. And that doesn't just happen physically. It also happens relationally and spiritually too. What happens to your relationships over time if you don't attend to them, if you don't put in time or effort or attentiveness or care to them, if you just leave them alone, which way do your relationships trend? We, we know what happens. We, we know this is happening among us. It's happening among some of you with friendships, with family members, or even in your marriages. It's why the divorce rate spikes not only after seven years, but also when the kids move away to college or to work. And Why? Because parents all too often, they, they spend their time focusing for decades upon their children and caring for their children, but not attending to one another. And they wake up one day, the kids are gone and they don't have a relationship anymore. It's decayed and deteriorated over time. And the same is true in our relationship with God. Because what happens if you shelve your spiritual life for just a while, weeks or even months? What happens? What happens if all of a sudden you start taking a break from regularly worshiping together with other Christians? Or, or reading God's word or the various basic spiritual disciplines like our 10 spiritual formation practices. Imagine if you just stopped from now until Easter. Many people do. Many people show up around Christmas and then they stay for a few weeks in the new year, probably New Year's resolution oriented, and then they just stop. And what happens? Try it. Actually, don't try it, but try, you know what I mean. Try it in the sense that you know what will happen. Later on this spring, later on this summer, you would tell me this is the state of my spiritual life because that is the spiritual and relational deterioration that happens with God as well. It's entropy. The physical deterioration and decay we see and experience in this world is just a sign or an image of what also happens relationally and spiritually with all of us. Everything in this world is like walking up an escalator that's moving downward. Everything. And Jesus' point is, left to themselves, everything in this world falls apart. It goes to pieces. So are you falling apart this morning? How in your life are you or someone else near to you? How are they falling apart? How are they going to pieces? According to Jesus, the answer is salt. According to Jesus, we are the answer, his followers. We are to preserve life and prevent decay as long as possible, whatever it is that's caused by sin. Christians living out the life that he came to share. That is the metaphor. So are we salt? And are we light? I don't have time to go into light, but it's a metaphor of truth and beauty. So do we bring and embody the truth of God and who he is to this world? Do we make life, human life in this world beautiful? Because we're here to be watched by the world, but we're also here to watch over the world because they're metaphors of influence. That's why Jesus says what he does in verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that they can see God. It's essentially what he says. So that they can see God and come to know him and love him and follow him. Metaphors of influence, beginning metaphors. But now point two, what does that have to do with anger? Point two, the initial obstacle to those metaphors of influence. And there are many obstacles that Jesus speaks about throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll get to all of them. He'll speak about lust and language and divorce. He'll speak about lies and conflict and retaliation. He'll speak about poverty and prayerlessness and greed and anxiety and hypocrisy. We'll get to all of that. But don't miss that the first obstacle that he speaks of is anger. And why anger? 
Very simply, because we cannot be salt and light in this world if we are ruled by anger, and so many are. It may be the defining characteristic of our age and our society right now. There's a 2019 article in The Atlantic that makes this very point. It's written by Charles Duhigg and entitled, The Real Roots of American Rage. How anger became the dominant emotion in our politics, and personal lives. And Duig recaps the work of this American Amherst psychology professor, James Averill, who has studied and written on anger for over 50 years. And he arrives at a pretty biblical understanding of anger. He, he says basically that not all anger is wrong, that it can be good and necessary, or as the Bible puts it, can be righteous. It can be based upon love. And when you see something that you love, something that's good and right and true, threatened or harmed, you rise up to defend it. But all too often, that's not the type of anger we express. God is angry that way. Jesus is angry that way, angry out of love. But all too often, whatever potentially righteous anger that we might have, it decays and deteriorates into unrighteous anger. And we're not concerned about protecting someone, but hurting, harming, or even humiliating someone in our anger to satisfy some sort of base craving that we possess. And this is what Duick says. He says, America has always been an angry nation. We are a country born of revolution. Combat on battlefields and newspapers at the ballot box has always been with us from the start. American history is punctuated by episodes in which aggrieved parties have settled their differences, not through conversation, but with guns. And yet our political system was cleverly designed to maximize the beneficial effects of anger. Recently, however, the tenor of our anger has shifted has become less episodic and more persistent, a constant drumbeat in our lives. It is directed less often at people we know and more often at distant groups that are easy to demonize. These far-off groups may or may not have earned our ire. Either way, they are apt to be less invested in resolving our differences, exerting on us an unwanted pressure that can have a dark consequence. The desire may not merely be to be heard, but to hurt those we believe have wronged us. That's pretty close to what Jesus says here and throughout the Sermon on the Mount when he speaks about anger and retaliation and vengeance. In verse 22, when Jesus says, whoever is angry with his brother, do you see that? Whoever is angry. He uses this word orgizo from which we get our English word orgy. And the most common definition for that word for us is a wild party, but it also means excessive indulgence with anything and any activity. So Jesus isn't talking about just a temporary emotional flare-up. He's talking about something much more persistent. There's another word that Matthew could have used if he was describing that, but he didn't use that. He uses orgy in order to describe an anger that is indulged and nursed and kept warm in in order that it might stay with us and become a part of us. Even the grammar speaks about it. In verse 22, he says, whoever is, is angry, whoever is angry because they're always angry, This is who they are. It's habituated anger. They're not just angry every now and then. They are an angry person. It's a defining characteristic of them. They are a person of disdain. They're irritable. They're grudge-holding. The question is, is that you? Is that me? Is it us? Is this us as Christians now in the culture around us? Because if it is, we will never be salt and light in this culture. Never. There has to be a change. 
that occurs with our anger, if we're going to find that we have the influence to which Jesus calls us, if we're going to preserve our culture from spiritual and moral decay, if we're going to penetrate it with the very light and life and grace of God, we must become something more and something other than angry. So how? Point three, the essential turn. There's an essential turn that we must make with this passage, really with any passage, in the Bible, but especially with the Sermon on the Mount, if it's going to have its intended effect upon us. And the turn is that we have to turn from the high, high calling that Jesus is laying upon us. And make no mistake, he is laying a very high calling upon us. We must turn from the very high, high calling that he's laying upon us to the low, low service that he has rendered for us. And that and that alone will change our heart because Jesus never calls us to do anything or to be anything that he hasn't already done or that he already isn't himself. And he is salt. And he is light. He is the salt of the earth. He is the light of the world. He, in and of himself, and even though he never once for a second lost his taste, he never lost his divine saltiness while he was in human form and continues to be, he was treated as one that deserved nothing good other than be tossed out and trampled underfoot. And he was. Not only by men, but ultimately by God, trampled underfoot, the very foot of God, which is what happened on the cross. He suffered and he endured the consequence of our failures and our refusals to be salt and light. He died and he endured under the penalty for our unjust anger, experiencing the very righteous anger of God on our behalf. He willingly became liable to the hell of fire for you and for me. How many times have we viciously and repeatedly called someone a fool? You fool! But he became the fool for us so that we might be brought close, that we might be forgiven, but brought close, not just seeing and understanding and knowing of his sacrificial life for us, but receiving his very life of salt and life in our hearts to the extent that it changes everything about us, that we might be people of influence for him on his behalf. And the Sermon on the Mount is telling us how how to flavor the world with goodness, how to preserve the world from decay spiritually, morally, how to penetrate the world with the grace and the beauty of God. And the first step, he says, is that we have to give up our grudge holding. We have to give up our wounds, whatever wounds it is that we're nursing, and move towards those whom we have wronged. Yes, even those who have wronged us, but his emphasis here is those whom we have wronged. In verse 23, Jesus assumes that we've all wronged somebody, or we will, that somebody has something against us. He said, if we can even translate it, when, when you remember, because you will, that your brother has something against you, go to him, go to her, give up your anger and go be reconciled. In verse 25, he says, go quickly, go now, don't wait. And some of us are waiting. Some of us have been waiting for a long time, waiting on that, first, that person to make the first move. And Jesus says, no, 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 you make the first move. You take the first step. Or waiting for our anger to subside. He says, no, 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 the way that you simmer or subside your anger is you go to them. Waiting for our hurt to be assuaged. He says, no, the way that your hurt is assuaged is that you go to them. And you do so in order that your anger and and hurt might be assuaged, that you might be reconciled so that you might be salt and light. He's saying that there's no one in this world that shouldn't be given the opportunity to forgive you because you have already been forgiven. 
You've already been forgiven by him. So don't prevent anyone from the opportunity of forgiving you. That is what it means to be salt and light. And here's what it might look like. Here's what that might look like, what the Christian life as a whole, according to the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll consider for the next five weeks, might look like. Something like what pastor and author, theologian Craig Barnes writes about in his book, The Pastor as Minor Poet. He tells a story of going for a run one Saturday morning in a neighborhood park. And as he's running, two college cross-country teams run by him, leaving him in their dust. He said they looked like Olympians in their fancy uniforms. They ran like Olympians. He said, I didn't look like an Olympian, and I certainly didn't run like an Olympian. He said, I felt like a lumbering dump truck as I ran, and they ran right past me. Uh, but then he finished, and he, he got to the end, and he, he noticed them talking to their coaches and, and to their teammates and to the, the other team. And he was walking to his car, but then he noticed that they started looking up and cheering for another group that was coming along. There was a second group of runners. And he was, he was curious as to what it was, so he went back, and he noticed that this next group of runners, they, they didn't look like Olympians. Now, they were running hard, but they had a clumsy pace to them. And he realized that they were all special needs athletes that were running. And he said they had very obvious physical disabilities, but they still ran, and everyone cheered. And so this is what he wrote. He said they had no interest in the coach's clipboards and stopwatches. And they seemed oblivious to the fact that this was a race, they were running with abandon for the sheer delight of it. A few were pushed in wheelchairs. Then two girls who had Down syndrome appeared at the end, walking, holding hands, smiling and waving to those of us who clapped and kept on clapping. No one cheered more loudly than me. And when I got back to my car, I couldn't stop crying. And why? Why couldn't he stop crying? Because he had seen light and he had, he had tasted salt. He had seen the very life that Jesus speaks about here, a life that's impossible, impossible for us. We all have our disabilities and impediments, but we still run, cheered on by the church with the very delight of God who delights in us, the very grace and delight of God himself expressed in and through God's people. These two groups of runners together that day, they were salt and light in the world. Craig Barnes experienced it. So may we too be salt and light in this world for the sake of others. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would become more fully who we are in and through your Son. As we often pray, pour out your Spirit upon us, even now as we gather around your table, that we might be more fully and completely united to you and that we might express the very life of God in which we have come to share. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.